All right, we are, as I said, we're going to continue on in our study of this survey of church history. And um, we're going to, I'm going to try to really become a little more focused on particular um, either periods of time, windows of time, or particular um, issues that are sort of preoccupying or occupying or dominating certain windows of time to try to give us some anchor points, really. Um, there's, when you talk about studying history of any era, of any time period, <clears throat> you always have to have some editorial uh, decision-making in, in that process. There's just so much that you could talk about. There's so many things that you could dive into and spend a lot of time with. There's, there's a lot of important things that um, in, any, in any study uh, that you do that's a survey type of study that you have to kind of sweep by or maybe not even deal with too extensively. So just uh, hopefully you understand and be patient with the process, recognizing that, you know, I'm having to kind of make some decisions on, on where to, to settle in. And hopefully, though, it, it gives us a good, uh, a good overview of the move of God's work in the church uh, through the centuries uh, in such a way that it gives us some good anchor points and uh, some good things that maybe just provoke further study for us. And then we can kind of on our own and d- dive into these various periods of time or these various uh, issues that arise, various um, uh, characters and figures that emerge in the church throughout its history, um, and really you know, dive deep uh, at, at will as you're uh, stimulated to do so on your own. So the one thing that I, I want to kind of start with today is we are going to go back into the book of Acts and kind of continue to survey our way through it is to just remind us that what we're seeing here, in addition to it being the first 30 years of the church's history, we're seeing what is really this major, and, and, and major is really an understatement, this massive transition in the redemptive work and purpose of God. I mean, it's, it, to, for, for God to, to transition his people through working primarily and principally through the people of Israel the Jewish people, to extending the gospel, fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling what he had always said. In other words, this is not new in the sense that it was never mentioned or it was never, it was some new idea that God just sort of arrived at and thought, wow, I think I got a new idea, let's do it this way now. But in terms of its impact, in terms of how it landed on the people of that day, it is massive. It, it, it cannot be overstated. And so, you know, as we look at these various um, components of, of this transition, um, you have to kind of keep that in mind. It's hard sometimes for us to immerse ourselves into this historical context and really have, you know, feel the weight of this and, and feel the sort of the dynamic of this. But just to, just to kind of set that as a backdrop, what we are observing in these opening chapters of Acts and really the, 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 the Acts as, as in, in, in its entirety, and as it describes the first 30 years of the church, is a sweeping major, major transition point in the work of God, particularly uh, among the Jewish people. Uh, obviously, it begins with the, uh, the empty tomb, and then you move right into Acts chapter 1, where uh, just prior to the ascension, you have Jesus uh, telling his uh, apostles and those gathered there that they need to go and wait, and they will receive power. So there's this, there's this promise of power that's going to come by the work and, and through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. So again, a new 
a new idea, a new principle, a new thing for them to absorb. They, they did not fully understand it at the time, certainly. Um, but the, the, there's going to be this need for power. They need to go wait for this power, is, is, the, is the directive. And then he says, you're going to be my witnesses. You, you're going to have a mission here. It's basically a little bit of a, of a refinement or more specificity to the Great Commission um, that we see in Matthew chapter 28. But he says, you're going to be my witnesses. This is what you're going to go do. And it's going to have a, a, both a theological and a geographic scope to it. So this, this way of breaking it down is, is really not just geographical in its implications. For the gospel, for them to be witnesses of the gospel in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, we discover, in really in hindsight, if you will, being able to look back, that this is not just geographic, but it's theological. It's, it's doctrinal in nature. It, it, it's, it spreads, it's, it's a spread of the gospel, not just geographically, but it's a spread of the gospel to people outside the Old Covenant, outside the, the people of Israel, which is representative of, for example, Samaria, who would be seen as you know, sort of half-breeds, um, not pure uh, Israelites, not pure Jews. And then, of course, to the ends of the earth, the way that that's stated is simply a geographic reference, but we find that to the ends of the earth, uh, has greater implications for the people of the earth as well, not just, um, not just the Jewish community as they're occupying regions um, around the world. Now, in fact, that, that lands on them, of course, in a way that is probably hard to fathom, even just from a practical standpoint, a pragmatic standpoint, of how this is going to happen, how, how are they going to accomplish this mission, um, just thinking about the, the context of the day and how they traveled and what travel was like, it, it, it's, this is an enormous task. And it's really, I mean, I, I find myself having to really s- slow down in my thinking as I'm studying this because um, we, we are so conditioned to think in instantaneous kinds of terms. Like our world in many ways has been shrunken down. You know, if we want to know what a certain place on the globe looks like, we can go and look at pictures of it. I mean, just, just you know, Google Maps, for example, is just, is just something that would be totally unfathomable. I mean, it just knowing what the landscape looked like outside certain tight quarters of, of their existence and their operation, um, for many, many, many people would have just been hard, hard to fathom. So this this daunting task of taking this witness of the gospel, this witness of the resurrection and the work of Christ to the ends of the earth is just like, how is, how is that going to happen? Now, interestingly enough, the fact of the matter is, is that at Pentecost, the whole world comes to Jerusalem, in effect. In a sense. Not, not in totality, but in a sense. The whole world comes to Jerusalem. And we see this very explicitly in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost because you have some specific um, areas or regions that are identified where Jews came from all over the place. And this gives you kind of a visual look of, of how far people traveled, where they traveled from to come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so you have this statement in Acts chapter 2 verse 5, now there were uh, dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So in one sense, God is gracious in that 
part of his plan of this witness to the ends of the earth was the earth or the ends of the earth in a sense coming to them. So that at the coming of Pentecost, I mean at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, there would be gathered there people from all over the place and, and would be witnesses of this amazing outpouring of power in, in, the, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, this amazing um, ability for these people who are now filled with the Holy Spirit to speak in languages that all these people could understand as they testified to the resurrection of Christ and the work of Christ and the meaning of his death and, death and burial and resurrection. And, and so they, they were, they're, they're all there and they're witnessing this astounding physical and miraculous testimony of this new work of God that is being played out right before them. So, so the world comes to them. Now, here's the key, though. We have, what we have to understand and remember is that this was the Jewish world that had come. So this only really was part of the mission. It only would, in other words, if they, if they adopted a strategy, let's say they all gathered together and they thought, you know what, they're thinking, they're thinking about let's how, how do we do this most efficiently? You know, maybe they bring in a consultant that says, you know, we need to figure out how to make this thing, this whole operation. We need to, have, we need to make it hum. It needs to be efficient. We need to, we need to make sure we, we conserve our resources and we get this message out as efficiently as possible. Someone in that consulting group might say, you know what, the whole world came to us. So let's just send these people out to their homes and just, they've already got shops set up there. They have probably home and family and friends and they've got community and they've got resources and they've got a job. So let's just make sure that we, we teach them enough for them to, to send them back to their homes and so that they can take this message to the ends of the earth. The problem with that is that that would be a, a strictly Jewish mission. And that doesn't satisfy the extent to which this great witnessing endeavor was to be uh, carried to. So you have in Acts, particularly in Acts chapters 1 through 8, you have this, this expansion of this mission, this broadening of it, to where it doesn't just stay in Jerusalem, but 1 through 8 takes us all the way out to Samaria. And so you're getting that next phase in the, in the witness uh, being carried out. And so we're going we're to kind of walk our way through this, but we're going to start with thinking about and looking at the Jerusalem church. And as, it's just, as, it, as it begins to form there in Jerusalem and become sort of the hub from which this message and this mission is carried out. And of course, we've already referenced the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, that they were all together in one place. So just, just being reminded of the fact that you had about 120 people gathered together in this one place. So it was a Jewish community of people, a small Jewish group gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. We talked last week about really thinking about the formation of the church and and really sort of looking from our vantage point back to this, this birth point of the church that we bring a lot of our own perspective, a lot of our own sort of um, social and theological and experiential sort of conditioning and mindset as we look at that, the, 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 it was, as we look at history. Um, and in fact, there's been no shortage of, of um, 
I think, uh, theological and doctrinal error that's been developed and propagated by virtue of mis- totally misreading, misunderstanding, misinterpreting, and misapplying what was actually taking place that we see in this part of the historical narrative. And to me, some of these things are key. For example, the coming of the Holy Spirit and what happens as a result of that coming, it, it, it's clear in, this, in the text that this is a unique event. It is not something that is going to be normative for the believers. Can you imagine a, a scenario in which every time someone came to faith in Christ, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and tongues of fire would come and settle on them, and they would begin to speak in another language, and that was just normative. That's not been the case. I mean, that's just, that's just not been the case. But you even have, clearly in the passage itself, giving us this, this clear direction that what we are seeing here is a massive launch of a new move of God according to what Jesus already promised. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. This is new. And you look in the Old Testament and you see the work of the Holy Spirit amongst his people, and it's very different. Very, very different. So this is a a brand new move and work of God, and it needs to be seen that way. And this is an an inauguration of that new move among those gathered there, the Jewish people who would come to faith in Christ. Those who were gathered as the the 120, and then the testimony that uh, flows out of that that leads to, to more people coming to faith in Christ. So again, this idea of a normative principle needs to be paid attention to, especially when we look at sort of the characteristics of the Jerusalem church, we need to remember that this is a very Jewish community. This is a very Jewish church, if you will, that's forming here. And so that's what we're going to look at for a few minutes as we, as we kind of get our minds around this, this birth and growth of the church. So you really have Acts 2.41. Um, I mean, you could... You could start if you wanted to with uh, the you know Acts two one the coming of the Holy Spirit if you wanted to or you could start with you know the point at which uh, Peter stands up and begins to deliver his sermon if you wanted to but but I chose to just start in in uh, verse forty forty one of chapter two because that's the point at which there is this massive response to the the, the witness of Peter as the as they observe what's going on with the coming of the Holy Spirit they hear the people speaking boldly and testifying in their own language, and then Peter breaks this down into a a message that they could consume and understand, drawing in passages from the Old Testament and Old Testament prophecy and tying it very cleanly and clearly to Christ and his ministry and and his work and what happened and the things that they probably knew about or had heard about in, in terms of what took place there in Jerusalem with the, the, the trial and crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so you have, as a result, this explosive growth that occurs. And that is characteristic of what we see uh, in the, the Jerusalem church. Again, keeping in mind, this is a major transition in the redemptive purposes of God. And this explosive growth is one characteristic or one attribute that you see that sort of highlights that point. You have the reference in 241 that speaks of how 3,000, about 3,000 Jewish converts come to faith in Christ on day one. On day one. Now that is, that's high impact uh, conversion right there. That, that is God doing a major, major work right there in the midst of that community. 
And again, I say, I say this again. These are Jews okay, who are responding to this message of the gospel, which is a major, it, 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 the implications for them in terms of the transitioning of their theology and their understanding of the work of God and who the work of God is for is going to begin to transition in a significant way. You have this explosive growth continuing. You have a reference in chapter 2, verse 47. It says, day by day, there were, there were people being added to the church. You have another reference uh, in chapter 4, verse 4. It says about 5,000 men who heard the word and believed. Um, there's some um, debate. You can't, we can't be 100% sure, but there's some debate as to whether or not this is 5,000 more on top of the original 3,000 and whatever the number was of those who are being added day by day. Um, some would say it is an additional, it, it's a reference to an additional number. So you would, if you added that to three, the 3,000, you'd have 8,000 plus. Um, some say that it is that the church grew to 5,000 men plus women and children. So something north of 5,000. So it would be the original 3,000 plus another about 2,000 and plus women and children. It really doesn't matter to make this point. There's a lot of people that are, that are in a short period of time, because again, we're covering about a two-year span of time here in total, going from Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 8, so you're ta- or at the, the beginning of Acts chapter 8. Um, and really, that, that slides, I, I changed that, it's really through the first few verses of Acts chapter 8, because you, then you move into um, the conversion of Paul. But um, this explosive growth obviously continues. You have another reference in chapter 5, verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Um, the number of the disciples uh, multiplied greatly, it says in chapter 6. Um, they multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So now you see in chapter 6 where it's, there's actually people in the priesthood that are coming to faith in Christ. So this is a major major move of God in people responding right there in Jerusalem to the witness of the apostles and the people who are coming to faith in Christ. So there's explosive growth that's taking place early on in the Jerusalem church. Now, what do you think might be some of the characteristics that also might be in play if you have what is a major transition in in an understanding of God's redemptive work and purposes that you have Jesus Christ as identified as the long-awaited promised Messiah, the Savior of God's people, who has now come. So the fulfillment of all this messianic anticipation and all the prophecies that they had known and studied and, and hung their hopes on, this is now the fulfillment. But they're all gathered there. You have this massive explosion of growth and people being added to their number. Um, what do you think might be some other characteristics that might coincide with this many people in these conditions being added to this new move of God, the New Testament church? What things might come to mind? Practical things, even. Hmm? Food? Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a minute. You'll see that dealt with. I mean, just what else? Think think of, what's that? Yeah, so you've got all these different cultures. So even though they, they had common faith, they're coming from all over the place. You have this, this 
coming together of people with different cultures. You had sort of people who were more inclined toward adopting uh, Greek culture, the Hellenist type uh, culture. You had those who were devout in their Judaism and would look with some level of disdain on the Hellenists. I mean, you had all kinds of like, tri- you know, um, merging of people from, even though they were all Jewish, from different ways of, of thinking and living and, and operating in a culture. Yeah. I wouldn't know anything about this, but I've heard in other contexts that people complain. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Yeah, so you get, you get people together in that number with those differences, and still, I mean, just, just again, reminding us, even the disciples, just prior to the ascension in Acts chapter 1, were asking Jesus if he was now going to restore the kingdom. So, if, if they were still a little bit perplexed, unsure, confused, not clear on where this train was going specifically, can you imagine bringing all these people together? It, we, we, we tend to, especially when you get to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and you see this utopic vision of these believers all being together, and it's a beautiful picture, and, and, and it's, it's accurate, I'm sure, um, but we had this, we, we sort of, there, there, there is a tendency for us to, because you don't have all these details, you have to kind of infer and think about what, what's it like when something like this happens with just normal people. There's a tendency for us to look at this and have either just an insufficient understanding or maybe even a too idealistic view of, of what was happening actually with the people and what challenges we're having to be faced and dealt with and overcome. Um, and, and again, that's going to that's gonna kind of tie into some of these other characteristics that we're going to see. But just, just imagine, you had 12 apostles. One of them new to the group. Not new among them, but new as an apostle, Matthias, who gets uh, chosen to, to replace Judas. And you've got this massive move and work of God where all these people are, are, are being saved. Major daunting challenge, yes. I often uh, remind people that most of these folks were out-of-towners yeah. who were there temporarily for a feast and wind up uh, getting saved and staying. So you have massive housing crisis, employment crisis, uh, you know, economic crisis among them. You know you're getting into my next slides. <laughs> I mean, i got a whole presentation here that I worked really hard on. I put this screen up. But yeah, no, seriously. Um, that, I mean, that, that we're going to talk about that, but that's you just. Yeah, it's, I think it's really helpful for us to kind of try to immerse ourselves into the context, so we can really kind of have an understanding um, of what was what was really going on in this day and time. So, yeah, this explosive growth—that's clearly a characteristic that that Luke makes us clear about. He, he emphasizes this. Um, you also have this focus on apostolic authority. That's a, a, a really clear. Um, characteristic that you see playing out here, and it, and it stands to reason, just citing what we just talked about in terms of the the um, the major shift in an, a doctrinal, you know, so clear doctrine and clear theology and how all this stuff works together. If you have the the disciples and the apostles before the ascension still unclear about things, imagine the need for having a, some authority invested in the apostles to be able to tie these things together in the teaching. And that's what you see there uh, in Acts chapter 2. You see this devotion 
to the apostles' teaching. So there was apostolic authority invested in the teaching and the doctrinal formation that was taking place at this day and time. Um, and and it's, it's really hard to even fathom what kind of, what kind of task, what kind of undertaking this represented. Um, but nonetheless, there was clearly in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following, by God's grace, there was a devotion that was described by Luke of these new believers to the apostles' teaching, to understanding all this. And really, you think about um, uh, Jesus teaching on the road to Emmaus after he was resurrected. You have this this unpacking of the Old Testament scriptures to help these two on the road to understand what these things were about that they had witnessed there in Jerusalem. And so you have this kind of unpacking and unfolding of the truth of God's sweeping redemptive work that goes all the way back to Genesis and carries them all the way through the patriarchs and, and the, the kings, judges and kings and prophets and all the way through to the New Testament. It's just wrapping all that together. So there was, by God's grace, there was, there was authority invested in their, their teaching and their doctrinal formation, and we get a, a hint of that in Acts 2, verse 42. There was authority that was demonstrated in the sign gifts and the gospel witness of the apostles. Uh, and others. Again, thinking about this normative principle, over and over again you have references to the works that were, being, that were taking place, these gifts that were being demonstrated through the apostles. Um, it, people were filled with awe as a result of this. And it was, it was invariably uh, coinciding with a, a, a gospel witness, a, a proclamation of the truth. So in other words, when you think about how um, this kind of, these kinds of references in Acts uh, can be erroneously co-opted and misused and misapplied for the wielding of special power in the name of Jesus, if you will. Uh, I, you really, it really is what we see oftentimes today is more akin to Simon the magician and what took place in Acts um, and wanting power to be able to use it to impress people. Um, you have that kind of thing, whereas, whereas what you see here is you see the, the, these signs and wonders, healings and, and, and even raising someone from the dead. I mean, just amazing things taking place that were accompanied by an opportunity to proclaim the truth. It was God using divine, his, uh, making his divine authority and presence known in tangible ways. People would be astounded. People would, would invest trust in, in what these men were saying, that they were sent from God, and it would give these apostles a platform for proclaiming the gospel and provide them with credibility. You have this great example of this uh, in, in Acts chapter 4, and there's other examples too you could point to, but it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is speaking of the Sanhedrin, uh, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. This is, this is after they get upset because they've healed the lame beggar who was at the temple gate over and over and over again. Everybody knew that this was a, a man who had been lame from birth, and, the, and so they performed this miraculous healing. And, and, and so the Sanhedrin had to acknowledge, even though they were annoyed by this initially, we'll talk about that in just a minute as well, but they had to, they had to understand, they perceived that these were common, uneducated men, and they were astonished. 
And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. So the, these, these signs and wonders that they were performing, Luke makes it clear to us that this was accomplishing a very unique and specific purpose, even amongst those who were trying to tamp the movement and the message down. They could not argue with what was taking place. And the unique nature of what was taking place is very, very different than what we hear about and see about in our day and time and have throughout other periods of history, uh, particularly with the onset of the Pentecostal movement, which we'll look at down the road, and, and modern charismatic movement, and that kind of thing. <clears throat> I mean, you have, uh, you have a healings that are observable, instantaneous, inarguable, and they serve as a platform for a testimony of the gospel. In other words, the healing that takes place does not become the thing. It's like you get moved off of that pretty quickly, the way Luke uh, records this. You get moved off of the actual sign and onto the message. And that's the pattern that you see over and over again uh, in, in Acts. You also see um, apostolic authority invested in the administration of the church. You have uh, a few different examples of that. You have, uh, for example, uh, the reference to... Um, to them uh, sharing resources. So you have in Acts chapter 4 a specific <laughs> reference to that, and, um, and you have the, the people selling their possessions and bringing the proceeds and laying them at the apostles' feet, and the apostles would, would handle the dis- disbursement of those resources to people. Um, you have in ch- uh, chapter 6 is the, um, the part where they realize that there's some conflict that's arising where uh, some of the widows are not being properly cared for. It's kind of a, a cultural uh, divide there. You've got the Hellenist widows who are not being properly cared for. So this utopic vision in 242, you start to see some problems emerging there in Acts chapter 6, where even in light of all this um, um, willing sharing of resources and food and housing and all these things, um, you still have uh, the, the sin nature on display amongst God's people and so there was some favoritism being exhibited in the, in the sharing and taking care of the widows there. The Hellenists were being not, not fairly treated, not adequately taken care of. So the apostles, they select seven men to help with this important service in the church. So you see this, this investment of, of apostolic authority in this early Jerusalem church, even in some administrative uh, oversight. Um, you could also add... Um, you know, this, their, their authority in terms of um, uh, discipline and rebuke. You have the account of Ananias and Sapphira, where you have them bringing, uh, holding back. They sold their, some property, and they held back part of their gift, and then they kind of lied about it, and they're struck dead. But Peter offers kind of a rebuke, and it becomes sort of an example. All the people were sort of in awe about this, and it becomes kind of an example about, about not, uh, not seeking to deceive the Lord. Um, so you have other examples, too, that you could cite. But they, 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 were, they had authority, in other words. There was, in the early uh, church in Jerusalem, there was um, leadership authority invested in the apostles. And it was unique. Again, I say it was a unique time and a unique kind of authority that was demonstrated in this new move and work of God um, in, the, in the coming of Christ and the message of the gospel. Well, you also have um, this communal fellowship, and temple worship. Now, this is unique, too. I mean, I think that, I don't know about you, I mean, I, I just, maybe this is just me, but, but I, I quickly 
would have moved past, it wasn't stuck in my mind, that what you had is you had continual temple worship taking place amongst the Jewish believers. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like they got together and they, you know, they wrote a few worship choruses and put up screens and started singing choruses. And you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, you, again, we bring our modern mindset into it and we start thinking about this. But this was a Jewish community. They continued in the temple day by day in their worship. You have the apostles um, in the temple teaching and preaching. So you have this communal fellowship where there's daily temple worship together. Now, the emphasis in chapter 2 uh, really highlights this as, as a characteristic of their fellowship, that they were in the temple day by day, and they were sharing meals together, they were breaking bread together, and they were enjoying the fellowship of all the saints. But, but this, this temple worship, the temple worship was still sort of a centerpiece uh, of worship practice for them. In other words, there wasn't this wholesale abandonment of all things Jewish or all things Judaistic. In fact, we know, as we will continue on in our study of Acts, that there was some controversy that, was, uh, that arises as a result of some of the um, practices in Judaism that were being infused into the church relative to um, circumcision and, and, and really this trying to force uh, Gentile, new Gentile believers to adopt really Judaism and Judaistic practices as a part of their, their uh, faith in Christ. So we'll talk about that at a later time. But just highlighting the fact that, that the temple worship was still um, central to these Jewish believers. You also had what I call, this is a little bit, uh, you know, kind of a funny way to say it, but they had what I call first century kosher potlucks. They were enjoying fellowship. Literally, it's like in our day and time where they just, it's like you could just envision them just going, being in each other's homes, a great sense of community, a great sense of sharing um, uh, of, of food and meals together, getting together from house to house and enjoying the favor of the people. Um, and it, it, it involved just the common, um, the common practice of sharing meals together, of breaking bread together, and enjoying fellowship around a table. So it was a, it was a very beautiful picture of of real day-by-day community life that, that was infused with this new blessing of God in the coming of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit and, and the, the salvation that has been brought by the Messiah. And it filled them with joy, and they, they manifested that in, in their fellowship. And then you have this selling and sharing of possessions to meet needs, as Shane was talking about, you had people that had come from all over the place in massive numbers, and they ended up staying there. A lot of them ended up staying there. I mean, we, we don't see them dispersing, really, until uh, Acts chapter 8, um, where they're kind of forced to disperse, in a sense. So, so you have people that just, it, it's, it's, again, this new move of God, people are just staying, and they're staying, they're enjoying the fellowship, and they're learning and devoting themselves to the, the apostles' teaching, and so they're growing. Um, more people are being added, so you can just imagine how that, that sort of the, the labor of service amongst these New Testament believers would continue to expand. So as, as people who'd come to faith in Christ on day one, part of that 3,000, you get a year or two, you know, a year or two out from that, and you've got people who had grown and understand more, and you still got more people coming in, so they're trying to invest. But you had this, what probably was in many degrees a bit of a, a 
financial crisis for many of them. They didn't have resources to sustain them for two years to all be living there in Jerusalem. They came for Pentecost, and then this thing happens. And they come to faith in Christ, and they're all staying kind of together um, to one degree or another. And so this right here is one of those areas, we talked a little bit about this last week, where you think about the normative principle, where oftentimes people will allow themselves to be convinced that this communal, like literal communal living, and maybe even it gets extended into um, uh, social and political type ideas about, you know, like communism as sort of the, a, a, better, uh, a better sort of way to govern a people um, it, it, based upon Christian belief. Uh, it gets tied to this, this reality in the New Testament church. Yeah. <coughs> Social organization, and you see it in churches that you know their mission is to, to uh, clothe and feed the poor, and they often appeal to this scripture as uh, one of the uh, the key points. You know, look, we need to get back to what the early church was about, which is just you know taking care of poor people. But I don't think they really realize, like you're saying, painting the background. This is not a this is not so much a social issue as a discipleship issue, mm-hmm. because they couldn't send these brand new believers back to Cappadocia where there's no church and expect them to get discipled there. They had to they had to figure out a way to provide the resources so that those folks could be discipled in Jerusalem and that meant, you know, this kind of sharing. Yep. And I think that it's important too to recognize that that the the this is a manifestation of the fruit of the spirit. And so the the meeting of needs, I mean we're called and compelled to do that. It's just that you don't want to take that to some kind of systematic or, you know, sort of politically imposed practice that is more noble than anything else, nor does that really reflect what takes place even in Acts as you go forward. I mean, I can, I can assure you that when you get out beyond Jerusalem, I mean, you're not seeing reference point and reference point and reference point to this kind of practice. You have the formation of churches and you have people who are Gentiles who... They don't, their, their worship doesn't center around a singular temple and you know, a, a, a faith heritage that goes back to you know, the Old Testament and the patriarchs. I mean, it's a completely different uh, distinctive that needs to be understood. That's why I'm kind of focusing on our understanding of the Jerusalem church and, and emphasizing the point that there are things here that are normative and there are other things that just aren't. They're just characteristic of this day and time with this people, and it was unique. And that's, that's, that's a part of it. But it does highlight for us, and it should, I think, uh, both compel us to aspiration and possibly compel us to conviction and repentance insofar as we as the people of God are, have closed ourselves off to genuine, giving, generous fellowship and hospitality amongst God's people. So there's a principle of... of um, encouragement of exhortation and possibly even rebuke here for us to be mindful of as well. So it's just kind of hold that in balance. I think is the is the key here. But nonetheless, at that particular point in time, it was it was of necessity, um, and that's that's how it's characterized. And you see it discussed both in the end of Acts chapter two and again at the end of Acts chapter four. Well, you also have as characteristic of 
the, the Jerusalem church, this growing hostility uh, from the Jewish leaders. This is something that just, it just, it just escalates over this two-year period. Um, it starts off, you know, you see in Acts chapter 4, where it says they're greatly annoyed by the apostles' teaching. Um, so, again, it's, it's more of an irritant. Um, primarily, the, at, the, at this particular stage, uh, you have the, the Sanhedrin, um, the ruling uh, leaders of Israel. They're uh, primarily Sadducees, and they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. So you have the apostles teaching about the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ, who is the Savior and the Lord. Um, and so it was a, really a, an annoyance to them. And that's kind of the way it's phrased in Acts chapter 4. It moves, uh, it continues to accelerate, though. They become perplexed, and, they, and, they, and Luke begins to express that they feel threatened by the apostles' authority. Um, they, they can't deny the, the authority by which they teach. Uh, they can't refute the miracles that are taking place. They, they, just, they have to look at that and say, something is legit here. They can't deny it. Um, I, I referenced a, 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 a passage earlier that, that spoke to that very thing. But they're gathering together at one point, and they're just trying to figure out what they're going to do to kind of shut this down, even though they can't argue with it as being something really happening here. And so they're kind of perplexed, but they're also threatened because they realize that if more and more people become followers of the way, followers of this this Jesus movement, then it threatens their very authority. It threatens their very you know, livelihood, their cush position in, in, in leadership. Um, or it could lead to an uprising or a revolt. You have to remember, too, we talked about this in the past, where you have all these different factions that are still at work and operating there in Jerusalem. So they don't know if these people are not going to turn toward the sort of the angle or the, the inclination of the zealots, that Jewish sect that was operating there in, in Jerusalem, who their intent was... Um, overthrow by physical force. They, they wanted to eliminate the Roman occupation uh, through physical force. So you have these competing factions. They don't know if the, these, these new Jesus people are going to be co-opted by a form of zealot-based uh, um, expansion. So anyway, they feel threatened is the point. They are moved to jealousy. It talks about that in, in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. They're very jealous of the apostles' growing popularity. They see that, obviously, as a threat, but they're also jealous about it. They don't like the fact that you've got these these other people, these common people, these uneducated people who are growing in such popularity. So Luke gives us a a window into the fact that they're they're just flat jealous of that. But it doesn't stay there. It doesn't just, they're not, they don't just stay annoyed or perplexed or threatened. They don't just stay jealous. They move to rage. It ends up where they just, they, it's gnashing of teeth. Um, you see this in Acts chapter 5, verse 33. Of course, you see it on vivid display when Stephen is arrested. Stephen, the, one of the seven men who were chosen to be a servant in the church, and, and he is blessed by the Holy Spirit with power. He's, he's working wonders and preaching. Um, the, the account of Stephen is a, is a tremendous account. It, 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 it's a demonstration of, of a man who is 
it's, it's this amazing story of this man who they cannot argue with his wisdom, it says. They're listening to him teach, and they cannot debate or argue or, or refute the wisdom with which he taught. And even he is described by those that were seeing him as having the face of an angel. So his whole demeanor and disposition was peaceful. It was godly. It, was, it had a, a, an air of holiness and, and righteousness to it. I mean, that's how he was described, even in his physical appearance. So he had wisdom that he was speaking from that they couldn't refute. He, he was not, he was not uh, demonstrating or presenting any kind of physical threat. It was quite the opposite, and, and that was cited. But, but you have the fact that his message, just his message, just him proclaiming the truth, when you, he went, and his, his, his message is like a, an exegesis of the Old Testament practically. But then when he gets down to the point of basically confronting them, on their complicity in the, the, uh, the execution of Christ and the implications of all that on them, they, they are enraged. They're moved to rage. So this had to have been a building thing for them. It didn't start with rage, but it certainly builds to that epic level. And, of course, we know the story of Stephen. He is ultimately seized, um, and he becomes the first martyr of the New Testament church. So you have this other characteristic of growing hostility. This leads us, and we'll, we'll pick up here next week, this leads us right into um, Acts, chapter one, um, Acts chapter 8. The first few verses there, what you see um, is uh, the Apostle Paul. Of course, at, the, at the, uh, the, the stoning of Stephen, you have Saul, who is Paul, and he's there uh, witnessing all of this. And then you have Acts chapter 8 beginning with this wave of persecution, Luke says, that, that breaks out. And Saul is at the forefront of leading the charge on this, this persecution of new believers. Um, and the story of, of Saul unfolds there. But what happens as a result of this persecution, and we'll see, is that that is how God uses a trial-like persecution to begin to scatter those believers out. And we see the, the, the witness to the Samaritans, for example, with Philip. Um, bringing the gospel to those in Samaria, and God's, God's promise of this witness scattering out being fulfilled. So we'll pick that up uh, next week as we begin to look at uh, Saul and, and this spread of the gospel to um, Samaria, and then ultimately to the Gentile world, and then we'll carry on with Paul's missionary journeys, and, and on we'll go. But just wanted to give you some context for the Jerusalem believers as they were gathered there, and the unique nature of this work of God and, and, uh, and how it was characterized. Any final thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah. How, how long had they been in Jerusalem at that point? Um, a lot of at what point? So at, at the point of Pentecost, uh, because, I mean, that's, that's the time for them to come to Jerusalem. That's the, you know, the time of the Passover and everything. And then there's 40 days after that. So is that typical for how long they would have stayed? Um, I, Shane, do you, I don't know. I'm sure. I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's. We don't know specifically like who was there for Passover. And people that obviously lived in Jerusalem were there for both. But there's really a. It's. It's. It, you really get the, the the indication of a totally separate sojourn to Jerusalem. So it would have been. You know, Pentecost is 50 days after the first day of Passover is when it starts. So you know, it's in that time window. 
Um, so, I mean, it's hard to say with any specificity. There's, there may have been some that, you know, traveled and had means to do that and were there from Passover. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you can't predict that with certainty. But it seems that the mass was there for Pentecost. Any other thoughts? All right, well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.